0: Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use your word this morning to help us see you more clearly, that you could be the vision that is always leading us. Lord, use my words and use the thoughts of our heart to accomplish this. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. When I first taught at Stanford, I gave a B plus to one of the first papers that I ever graded, which I thought was a very respectable grade. What I didn't take into account was that Stanford is full of hyper-achieving type A personalities like me, most of whom had never seen a B in their entire life. So the next day, the student came to my office and she was in tears and she said, I have never received such a humiliating grade in all of my life. B plus, this is terrible. My entire future is ruined. So I had to calm her down and say, you know, it's okay. It'll be all right. It's a consonant. It's a consonant. I know you've never seen one before, but it won't hurt you. She was addicted to success. And I can relate. I don't know about you, but I I want to be thought of as successful. My problem, though, is that I'm high ambition and low motivation. So there's a conflict there. I still cra- I want more than almost anything else to be thought of as a success. Every year I go to what's called a tall, steeple pastor's conference. That's a conference where pastors of large churches get together and celebrate their large churchedness. (laughs) And at these conferences, you can never actually ask the question, so how big is your church? That would be gauche. You never ask that. So instead, we ask things like, how many services do you have, which is code for how big is your church? And I'm excited because this year I get to say why we have three, but we're adding a fourth because we're so very big. And even though I had nothing to do with the size of this church, it was big when I got here, nevertheless, I will take credit for it. (laughs) Because I want people to think that I'm a success, not necessarily on God's terms, but by whether or not I impress other people. And maybe some of you can relate. Because I think that we live in a culture that is dominated by pressure to succeed. Just look at the Olympics. I think the Olympics are a very interesting cultural artifact. I love them. They're thrilling, but talk about addiction to success, it's everywhere. First, they show you those sentimental stories about how the athlete's parents had to sell the family farm to pay for the ice skating lessons, you know, and then the commentator says something like, will it have been worth it? It all comes down to tonight's performance. (laughs) So you're already freaked out, right? And then the ice skater starts to skate and she jumps, but she does a little hop on the landing and... The commentator says, oh, no, she hopped. Of course she did. That's what happens when you jump up in the air and twirl around and land on a razor blade on ice. You hop, if you're lucky. And then the commentator says, this is too bad. She's going to have to settle for silver. Yeah, what a loser, man. Whoa. And the poor athlete is left to feel like her entire life has been a waste because her triple sow cow didn't turn out. We are obsessed with success. And we constantly feel pressure to succeed in our careers, as parents, even as Christians. We compare ourselves. Do I know as much Bible as so and so? Am I as spiritual as that person? Whatever that means. And all of that anxiety to succeed just creates pressure, stress, workaholism, and fractured relationships. Now, I want to say it is not bad to be successful. If it happens to us, if we just happen to be successful, it can be a very good thing. The point of this sermon is not to go out there and be a loser for Jesus. It's not where I'm headed. It's just that when we turn to the Bible, one of the things that stands out is how little God actually cares about our success. Which kind of annoys me because it's my number one goal, so I think it should be his too. But it's not. In fact, the people that God chooses don't often look very successful according to our standards. Moses never got to the promised land. David was such a lousy parent that his kids launched a civil war against him. You thought the terrible twos were tough. (laughs) Jesus was perhaps the biggest failure of all. Twelve measly followers and one of them didn't turn out so well. God seems more concerned about other things. In the passage we just read, the Apostle Paul is at the end of his life. He's in prison. Everybody he knows has deserted him. And the churches he helped to start are in shambles. The Ephesians are fighting with each other. The Corinthians were coming drunk to communion and sleeping with their stepmother. You know, whenever we have problems here in the church, I always just comfort myself and say, well, at least we're not the Corinthians. (laughs) So we got that going for us. Paul could have easily viewed his entire life as a failure. And yet there is something in this passage that sounds victorious. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That doesn't sound like a man who views his life as a failure. And I think that's because he understands some things about success from God's point of view. And the first is this. God does not call us to be successful He empowers us to be significant. God doesn't ask us to rack up a lot of accomplishments, make a name for ourselves, write a bestseller. The things that God is most pleased with are those things that we do that make a difference in other people's lives and that help them see Jesus. When we pray for someone, or mentor a younger person, or or when when we're loving parents, that's what God calls us to do. I have a picture in my office of me baptizing a student that I mentored for three years. I saw him through the death of his mother and several major faith crises, and he came out the other side, a strong Christian and a very admirable young man. And I keep the picture in my office to remind me of what's important, so that if I get stressed out over a sermon or budgets or attendance or whatever, that picture reminds me that what's important to God is not what I achieve It's how I help others see Him. Success is fine. It's wonderful if it comes our way. But what God wants is for us to make a difference for Him. And that's better. Because the thrill of success is short-lived. The thrill of the award, the title, the promotion, that wears off pretty quickly. But significance is deep and it lasts forever. God doesn't call us to be successful. He empowers us to be significant. The second thing that Paul understands is that God doesn't ask us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. Years ago, a reporter was interviewing Mother Teresa, and the reporter asked her, well, how many people do you actually end up saving here in Calcutta? And Mother Teresa said, oh, almost none of them. They almost all die. And the reporter said, well, I guess you're not very successful then, are you? And Mother Teresa said, God did not call me to be successful. He called me to be faithful. And that's what Paul is saying in this text. I may be in prison. My churches may be in shambles. But I have done the thing God asked me to do. I have been faithful. When I'm stressed out over some sermon, when I'm worried about whether or not I'm being a successful pastor, whatever that would be, what God says to me is, Scott, I never asked you to be successful. I ask you to show up, do the best you can, and just keep doing it. Go ahead, preach that lousy sermon. Someone will get something out of it. I'm a God of miracles. Go ahead. <laughs> just be faithful. Sometimes I think we are very afraid to try to make a difference in people's lives, very afraid to step out and serve, because we're afraid we're going to mess it up, afraid we're going to fail. But when you stand before Jesus on Judgment Day, He is not going to evaluate your performance. There will be no grade at the end of the course. Isn't that good news? The only question He's going to ask is, Did you follow Me? And did you try to do the things I asked you to do? He's not going to ask you how well you did them. Just, were you faithful? And finally, God does not call us to be successful He wants us to build life-giving relationships. He wants us to be significant. He wants us to be faithful. He wants us to build life-giving relationships. At the end of his life in this text, Paul is asking for three things. A cloak because he's cold, his books because he's bored, and a guy named Mark. And the interesting thing about Mark is that way back in Acts chapter 15, Paul thought that Mark was such a lousy leader and such a lousy Christian that he refused to take Mark with him on one of his missionary journeys because he thought Mark would ruin the success of that journey. And he wasn't very nice about how he did it either. But now, all these years later, who's Paul asking for? Mark, because he is useful to me in my ministry. God had worked in Paul's heart and brought reconciliation and healing. And whereas before, Paul was so determined to succeed that he ran roughshod over Mark, now Paul realizes that success isn't the issue. Relationship is. And he ends up asking for the very man that he rejected. So often in our quest for success, we run roughshod over other people. We work too long and too hard and neglect our family and our friends. Or we're so determined to get ahead and stamp out the competition that we do. And in the process, hurt feelings and wreck lives. But to God, our success is not what's important. The relationships we build along the way are. God doesn't ask us to be successful. He empowers us to be significant. God doesn't ask us to be successful. He calls us to be faithful. God doesn't ask us to be successful. He wants us to build life-giving relationships. And, you know, in many ways, this is what we have been talking about the entire fall as we've been looking at the biblical year of jubilee as a way of preparing for our jubilee year as a church. The year of jubilee in the Bible was meant to be a year to be significant and to be faithful and to build relationships. Every 50 years, debts were canceled and land returned to its original owners and and slaves were set free so that people who had been accumulating blessings for 50 years could give some of those blessings back as a way of building relationships. It was, time, it was a time to stop concentrating on accumulating and on success. And concentrate on being significant and being faithful and building relationships. And that's what we want to do as a church in our Jubilee year. We have been receiving blessings as a church for 50 years. We are considered a very successful church. And individually, we are very successful people as well. But we want to be significant We want to make a difference on the east side and in the world and do that in a way that helps people see what the real Jesus is really like. And there are a lot of ways that we can do this. Collectively, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to come alongside of a school. We're going to partner with a school to provide support to students and to parents who need it. Things like tutoring and helping fix up the school, all kinds of things. Individually. There are all kinds of ways that we can be significant. If you stop by the Jubilee booth today, you'll find information on a new group called Halftime. And that's a group of people that will explore how to move from success to significance. You could tutor a kid at KidReach. You could be a mentor at Eastside Academy. Maybe you don't have time to add anything into your schedule. That's okay. Maybe the real thing to do is do what you're already doing, but with a slightly different focus. Instead of seeing your office or your school or your neighborhood as a place to live or to work, instead, see it as the place that God has put you in to make a difference, the mission field he called you to. Pray for the people that you work with or live near. Look for ways to serve them. Tell them once in a while what you like about them. Be there when they need a listening ear. I was at a leadership conference this summer And I heard a speaker named Tim Sanders, and he's a business consultant who has this crazy notion that to be a good leader, you should actually be nice to the people you're leading. Go figure. And he told a story about a mid-level manager at Microsoft. And one of the things he advised this manager to do was, instead of emailing people who sit just 10 feet away, anyone do that? I do that sometimes. Actually get up and go talk to the person as though they mattered. And every so often, tell them what you like about them. Well, the manager he was advising at first resisted because emailing was just more efficient. But he decided at one point to take the advice anyway. So he went around to his employees and just talked to them and told them some of the things he appreciated about them. One week later, one of his employees came into his office and gave him a brand new version of the computer game Xbox Live. And the manager said, where'd you get the money to buy this? Because he knew he'd never given him a raise. And the employee said, well, I sold my gun. You see, six months ago, my mother died, and I was depressed. So I started working here, and I thought that would help, but no one ever talked to me. They'd just email me. So I looked up coping one day, coping with a dead mother on the Internet. But what I found instead were suicide chat rooms. So I went and I bought myself a gun, and I've been practicing ever since. I've even practiced putting the gun to my head with Kurt Cobain music playing in the background. And for the last month, the safety has been off. And I knew that if I died, you'd never know until payroll told you. But then last week, you freaked me out. You came up to my desk and you put your arm around me and you told me that I was funny, even on email, and that's hard to do. And you told me that I always got my projects done early and that helped you sleep at night. And that's one of the reasons you liked me. So I went home and I sold my gun and I bought you this because for the last month you've been complaining over email how you wanted Xbox Live, but that your financial advisor, a.k.a. your wife, wouldn't let you have it. (laughs) So I went out and bought it for you. So for my life here, this is yours. Thank you. Here's this mid-level manager at Microsoft trying to be efficient, trying to be successful, but through a very simple act becomes significant instead. And he didn't have to do that act perfectly. God didn't say, I want you to go do this little act and I want you to do it perfectly. I'm going to grade you at the end. He just had to show up. He just had to be faithful. And instead of emailing someone that sat 10 feet away, build a relationship that was literally life-giving. And how much time did it take? Hardly any at all. He just had to do what he was already doing, where he was doing it, with a little bit different focus. And i got to believe, you got to believe, that whatever achievements, whatever titles, successes, this manager goes on to rack up, they're going to seem like small potatoes, in comparison to the moment when that employee said to him, you have changed my life forever. Because deep down, that's what we all want. Don't you want to hear that? Deep down, we all want to know that we are significant, that we matter, that we're not just here to produce and consume, but that we matter. You see, significance is always better than success, and a testimony is always better than a title. Who are the people in your office, your neighborhood, your school, or on the east side for whom you can be a difference maker? And how can you do that in a way that shows them what Jesus is really like? Because the only thing better than being significant is being eternally significant. And the way we do that is not to just practice acts of kindness, but to do it in a way that helps people know Jesus, the one who loves them more than anything else, who forgives them and restores them to relationship with God. And the one who gives us the power to be significant and make a difference for him. You see, our model for success should be Jesus. Probably the biggest failure in history according to the world standards. He accumulated no title. He had no followers at the end. He had little education and even less money. The only piece of property he ever owned was his cloak and he lost even that. And yet because he was faithful, because he died to show us how much God loves us, because he invested his life in relationship with us, nobody had greater significance than him. I don't know whether you feel like a success or like a failure today. What I do know is that you can be significant. Wherever you're investing your life to help people know the love of Jesus, wherever you are being faithful to show others who Jesus really is, wherever you are building life-giving relationships, whether you ever get a medal, promotion, award, or recognition for that or not, you will be significant. You will matter forever. And when you stand before Jesus, that great failure, according to the world standards, he will look you in the eye and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant, well done. And when the Son of God says that to you, how much more success do you need? Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you did not make us just to live a few years and produce some things and consume some things, Lord, but that you made us to have eternal significance Lord, we want to experience that. We want to do what you made us to do. Lord, help us have eyes to see the people that we work with and live near. Lord, help us to see them the way you see them and see the opportunities to make a difference for you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.